Welcome to The Futurist with your hosts, Ben Rohde and Alex Lightman. Each week, we feature a specific aspect of our collective future with action steps you can take to make your own future better and brighter. Our guest experts are top futurists in their field who will remind you that anything is possible. Give us 90 minutes and we'll give you the future. Hello, this is Alex Lightman, and welcome to The Futurists with Alex Lightman and Ben Rohde. Today, our guest, our honored guest, is U.S. Transhumanist Party founder and presidential candidate Zoltan Isfan. Welcome, Zoltan. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you for coming. I was with Zoltan two weeks ago in Seoul, Korea. We were both speaking at the Global Leaders Forum which is sponsored in part by the Korean government. This is the Republic of Korea, uh, formerly known as South Korea. And we were on the closing panel, the closing panel. I was chairing. Uh, Zoltan was a featured uh, speaker. And it was called Abolish the Government. Uh, This show is taking place 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific time. However, uh, 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 what's amazing is just minutes ago, the... South Korean Parliament, uh, this is also December 9th, it's in the late evening in Korea, voted to impeach President Park. So we are futurists. We did a panel on abolish the government in Seoul, Korea, and a couple weeks later, the government is abolished right before we're going to go on the air. I mean, it doesn't get much more, um, well, my friend Chris Smedley, who's the uh, ambassador for the Network Society in Canada um, has is come up with this concept called future crafting. It doesn't get much more future crafting in a political sense than what just happened. So Zoltan, uh, wh- pretty cool. What was it like? What was it like to uh, start the Transhumanist Party? Why did you start the Transhumanist Party, and why did you run for president? Well, you know, I, I started the Transhumanist Party because. Uh, The movement of transhumanism, you know, using science and technology to improve the human being had no political element. And I I just feel like, uh, as you can see from the impeachment of the president in South Korea, you know, you need a political element. That's sort of how you move society forward. So it made a lot of sense um, after writing my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, which is sort of a a political manifesto, to to begin – to try to create a political movement in, um, in the transhumanist community. And that was really best done by forming a party. And of course, every party needs a presidential candidate. But when we started, we were so small that it just made sense to um, have a small nomination process by the officers of the party. And, uh, you know, uh, I was the one who was nominated. And um, that's sort of how that entire campaign of over two years, as well as the party, began. So what are what is a transhumanist? What are the essential elements of being a transhumanist? And how many people are, tr- are declared transhumanists who say, I'm a transhumanist? And how many of them meet your criteria for being a transhumanist but don't necessarily know it, uh, know it or declare it? How, how many how, – so I am a declared transhumanist. I used to be the executive director of the World Transhumanist Association, which – uh, retreated from fear from Christians back in around 2007 or so, and called itself the DBA, Humanity Plus. So I'm 
I've been a long-term declared uh, transhumanist. You're obviously the most prominent transhumanist in history to be declared. How many of us are there, and how many uh, how many admit it? Well, and, and that's a fascinating question because there's three different things going on. And around the world, I mean, I, I got to say there's at least 100 million people that are definitively embracing transhumanist technology. But what I generally say to the media is that there's a few million people around the world that, would, that know the term and probably would say, if, if asked point blank, am I a transhumanist? And they'd say, yes, yes, sure, I'm, I'm transhuman. But I think uh, when it actually comes down to numbers, we're probably only in a few hundred thousand like yourself who would just say, I'm a declared transhumanist. And, and this is important because on my website, for example, I say I'm a transhumanist. I want to make that point. For me, the, the word is very, very important. Um, I think it's a statement. It's kind of that it's a badge in a way that says, look, I am wanting to do something way beyond um, just normal science and technology. And that's really what transhumanism is the application of science and technology to upend the human experience and change it to make it much better, much more complex, anything you want it to be, whether it's even growing a third eye in the back of your head or, or, you know, cutting off an arm and putting on robotic arm. But around the world, there's probably only a hundred, a few hundred thousand of us declared, but at least a few million that really know the term well and would probably say, yes, yes, I, I am a transhumanist if asked point blank. Okay, I'm going to give you some advice. If you run for president again and you want to, uh, and you want to give the short definition, to, if you want to cut off your arm, not going to get you as many votes as what <laughs> I've been telling people. The first thing is transhumanists want to extend their lives to enjoy all the great things life has to offer. I was at a party last night, and I, um, and I was talking to the girlfriend of a, of a a person I'm working with on developing a drug protocol, and she's smoking. And I said, you have the ability right now to stop smoking. I can help you stop smoking right now. She goes, okay. I said, so can you think of all the things you would love to do if you got an extra 20 years of healthy life? And she went, oh, yes. And, you know, we were talking about that. I said, every time you are tempted to go for a cigarette, think of all the things that you would do with an extra 20 years of healthy life compared to what you would do with that cigarette. That, to me, is the essence of transhumanism, radical life extension. And the second thing, to me, is intelligence increase. Imagine if you could get the equivalent of 20, 30, 40 extra IQ points, and you could understand more books. You could program better. You could start companies and make more money and invest in the future and predict things and not be surprised by them. And the third thing is, what if people start to get superpowers? What if you want to have superpowers? Or what if you want to add technology to your body to imp improve your reaction time? So to me, this is the essence of transhumanism. You own your own body, and you can upgrade it as you wish, and you can even change bodies if you want to. So I'd, that's how I'd go. So here's yeah, something yeah, I'd I, like to jump to. Go, go ahead, please. Well, I, I was going to say I, I agree with your, your definition, and I like, I like the things you said for sure. 
So, uh, Zoltan, we have President-elect Trump, and it's very interesting to me. This is the first time I've seen somebody who isn't in office yet referred to as president because he's not president until he takes the oath of office and is sworn in. Of course, we have to get through the Electoral College, and some electors have said that. But assuming that uh, Donald J. Trump is sworn in, becomes president, he has, in his first 100 days, he said two things that I found interesting, and I'd like to get your take the first one is he says he's going to create 25 million jobs. The only way that that's meaningful is if those are net jobs. Now, right now, we have 96 million people of working age who are not working. So it's called the labor force participation rate, and it's only at 62. And that's a much more important number to me than the fake number of unemployment. How the hell are 25 million new net jobs going to be created when robots and AI uh, and automation are going to be roaring across America full force? That's the first question. And the second one is Donald Trump says that he wants to accelerate the approval through the FDA of 4,000 drugs. And I, was, I met someone yesterday who has very strong influence with the administration who told me who he wanted to get a point head to be the head of the FDA to accelerate that approval. So there are things. How are we going to create those jobs? Is it possible or is it just simply campaign rhetoric? And how are we going to get those drugs approved? And what happens to America afterwards? I really want your take on this. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, and to begin with, on the first question, how is he going to create 25 million jobs? Look, uh, I think that's just the rhetoric that a lot of presidents, uh, uh, you know, campaigning presidents use to try to get into office. Um, nobody's able to fulfill all their promises and uh, not through their first 100 days and not through their four or eight years. However, you know, Trump will probably create more jobs than um, uh, Mrs. Clinton would have done. Not saying that that's, you know, better or worse. But, um, you know, he does – he is, uh, let's be honest, a master in the, in the world of business. And so hopefully he will figure out ways to do it. I would, su- I would suggest things like, um, you know, open up the marijuana industry. That could create millions and millions of jobs, uh, you know, overnight, brand new jobs. But I, I unfortunately doubt that's going to happen. I just think the, the bottom line here is with Trump, with Clinton, it doesn't matter who was elected into office. Jobs are disappearing because of robots, because of automation, because of artificial intelligence, and they're never, never coming back. And I think everybody has to sort of start getting used to that idea and say, what's the alternative? And, of course, I support a universal basic income as an alternative, but, um, you know, maybe there are other ways to do yeah. it. But the bo- idea of recreating jobs, especially in the realm of $25 million, is just something that's, that's um, you know, it's, it's basically, I think, uh, far too difficult. You know, yeah. I heard, look, I heard and, Ben Rohde in there. Ben Rohde, do you know how we create those jobs? Or uh, I just want to say one thing. Zoltan and I are very different people, but we completely agree that it's going to be really difficult to go and create 25 million jobs in the face of robotic unemployment. And we completely agree that you could create millions of jobs with the legalization of cannabis – And this is what gets me. This is what I don't get about the Trump administration picks. All he has to do is do nothing, and millions of jobs will be created because of legalization at the state level. And so who does he choose as the attorney general? Sessions, a man who has a childish view and says, 
people who smoke marijuana are bad people. Actually, it includes veterans in serious pain from defending our country. It includes children who are having grand mal seizures and might die from it, who can be given cannabis nasal sprays and stop it. It includes a lot of people who want to stop getting opioids which have killed half a million people and want to get off of opioids, which will get you addicted and which will make you dead in many cases, which are very dangerous when there's no incidence in which somebody has died of the toxicity of cannabis. So I don't see that this agenda of creating jobs is met with anything like the wartime footing in the face of technology that's necessary. So I guess I have to ask you a sub-question related to this job thing. Why don't we require tech-savvy as a precondition for even running for president or running for office? What is wrong with us? Uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. You know, <clears throat> I think it should be. And, in fact, that's one of the reasons I ran for president, to, to try to introduce science and technology as not just um, something you talk about on the side, but as a – as a main platform of one's campaign, because I can't imagine that even as we move forward in society, the next four, eight, 12, 20 years, that everybody's campaign is not going to revolve around science and technology in 20 years, science and technology is going to be what everybody campaigns on. And I, I wish more, I wish more candidates now would have considered it because it's astonishing. We went through these debates and didn't hear some of these absolutely um, imperative questions. The ones you're just bringing up right now. Okay, I so the second question. Jobs. Sure, so, please. Uh, so let me comment on the jobs first. You know, I usually have the, the responses a little more, uh, a, a little farther out there. So I'm, I, I like, I like I, I'm with him where I think people have a big And I think that. Benny, I Ben, anybody, I can't actually understand. I can't actually understand what you're oh, saying. Oh, no. Okay, well, you, you go ahead. I'll just figure something out. Okay, I, I mean, I think, I think I know where Ben was going to go with that. Um, Zoltan, do we need jobs? Do we need to define things as jobs? Or do we need to, to redefine it and call it something else? Uh, because, and, and what's the role of basic minimum income in letting us be ourselves and express ourselves and live happy lives without necessarily having to have a job if we're able to engage in voluntary simplicity. Well, um, so I think of Buckminster Fuller when he says we make a world that works for everything and that we should be trying to work ourselves of having to work. What, what do you think of that whole role and, and basically the role of, of seeking spiritual truth and other things besides having a job? Well, a- absolutely. And I think, you know, and I've said this many times, this has been a core policy of my campaign and, and all my ideas moving forward is that we have to, we're going to have to rebrand the American dream, you know, for, 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 you know, ages now, it seems like the American dream has been this great thing, not just in America, but around the world where you could go and make some kind of dream and build enough capital to have a, you know, your big fat rich life or whatever it is that you want to call it. But the new dream has to be something that's not necessarily based entirely on consumerism and not based on you work really hard and make all this money. It has to be based on something outside of that because no matter how hard you work, a robot is just simply going to be able to do your job better. So rebranding the American dream is very important. And I have suggested that we you know, make colleges 
entirely free, education entirely free. Let's have a, a society where people get multiple PhDs. Let's have a society where people dedicate, you know, decades and decades to art, where they have the leisure lifestyle. They don't need to worry about where, the, you know, what, how they're going to get food or whether they have something over their head. We, we can live in a society based on robots and automation doing all this work for us and enjoy the things that might actually move culture forward, like science, like education, like culture, like art, some of these things. I mean, and maybe it's even not that. I, I would even advocate for people just saying, hey, I just want to sit on a beach in the Bahamas all day and play the guitar and, and be a surfer. That would be fine for me. But whatever it is, we need to look beyond this nine to five grind of working and say that the American dream is changing and it's going to make our lives more leisurely. But that doesn't mean that we have to give up the best parts of humanity or even our ambition. Our ambition just can take uh, a different type of form. Yes, thank you. Exactly. Great. So, Ben, you were going to ask, uh, or, or you, do you have another question? I don't know. I, can you hear me? I'm, I'd love to contribute. I, I hear you. Yeah, you go ahead. Your, your thing is working okay, now, good. so please proceed. Perfect, though. I, I just text the Internet guy. Um, so, yeah, everything that you just said, it, it added on. And what I think that people need is, is – coaching on life purpose they need an education on life purpose how can like how do i want to contribute to the world if like what is my like what is my specific reason for being on the planet that will allow me to contribute to the world if i'm not scraping by and trying to survive right and so every i believe that everybody has a specific life purpose nobody's able to focus on it because they're pigeonholed into a job and so I think, I, you know, everyone's saying that it's, it's horrible that AI is taking people's jobs and it's all about the jobs and everybody needs jobs and your kids need to work. But I think it's great that AI is taking jobs. I, think, I don't think that anybody should have a job they don't want. I think everybody should only do what they want. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, talked about how I retired from the post office five years ago. Right. I retired from work. Not that I'm never going to do anything again, but I'm not going to feel work, life purpose. And this is where the planet is going. I feel like if we want to live longer, right, all the technology is, is amazing. The substance are amazing. The, 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 the uh, new discoveries in, in the medical sciences, it's all amazing. And what is all of that? What's happiness, right? What's of living another 10 or 20 years if we're in a job that we can't stand, right? What's the point if we're not with somebody we love and doing something that we love? Because I know that for my life purpose, I'm never going to stop. I could live another 100 years and I'll still be doing something uh, that I love doing. There's no, no retiring from purpose. So uh, that's, that's my thought on jobs and AI AI taking jobs. You can have them all. Okay. So, uh, Zoltan, are there going to be any technologies that create uh, work, that create employment, that create sources of wealth? And I'll give you one. So next week I'm going to go to a relatively famous company run by a relatively famous entrepreneur, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to present them with the Fudini 3D food printer. We've had the guest, uh, Lynette, uh, on the Futurist show in the past, and I'm going to show it working for potential space applications. Kind of cool. 
So I think 3D food printing is going to enable some people to open up food businesses and make beautiful geometric shapes that have never been able to be made before. Are there anything that even on a small level that you've seen in your travels as you went around the country in a uh, coffin-shaped bus uh, that will make new jobs? make new or but not necessarily jobs but make things that you know people will be trying out new things and making money and making a living and a life in different ways <clears throat> well I, I think um when it comes to art when it comes comes to creation when it comes to even things like cooking there'll probably always be a place for human beings because in the end of the day, anything, anything that requires subjective opinions is something that's going to be okay. Or you know, something that a human being will always be able to do just as well as a robot, because anything that's subjective doesn't require the value base is completely open. It's, it's what you want it to be. And maybe uh, a human cook will always be better than a robotic chef. Even if the robotic chef knows a million more times uh, uh, recipes and things like that. So, yes, there's always going to be work out there. But the real question, I think, is, is should we do that? Yes, we have, well, we have 3D printers creating new types of foods. But the question is, should we be putting that food in the 3D printer or should a robot be putting that in? And then should that food that came into the building in the first place be delivered by a person driving a truck or by a self-driving truck? You know, I mean, uh, I just think ultimately – What's gonna, I think ultimately what's going to come is a place where we might make many of the decisions, humans, behind their desks or from their home, just from their iPhone or even you know, chip-enabled things inside their brain. But um, most of the work, most of the you know, types of, I guess, nuts and bolts of the economy will certainly be done by machines. That doesn't mean we're gonna, our creative process will die, though. It just means that we are going to take a, a different type of perspective of it and probably control it from, at, at least moving forward in the next 50 years, control it from just our, our thoughts and our, our um, I guess, our, our own personal desires and never have to step a foot into the office. Um, but, you know, whether that all makes money or not, that's a very different thing. Ben, you wanted to so say I, something? I, no, but I, I do have a question. Um, so, a lot of a lot of what I I watched some of your videos and I read some of your articles and it's all fascinating stuff, really cool stuff. And so, what I'm most curious about is the stuff around long life, longevity. Um, what what can we actually expect from transhumanism and from science and technology? and the medical industry to be able to help us live longer. What does that mean? Is that an extra five years? Is that an extra 50 years? What does that actually mean? And how, how is that going to happen? Well, yeah, and this is, you know, of course, one of my favorite topics, which I essentially campaigned on. You know, there's a number of different ways to overcome death and extend life. I, I, I support um, organ tr- replacement of some sort, where we either create artificial hearts, you know, 30% of everyone dies from heart disease, or we, uh, you know, have stem cell injections, the organs that are failing. But whatever happens, a lot of people die from organ failure, basically. So we need to work out how to make better body parts when they get old and things of that nature. Uh, our minds, you know, a lot of people's minds can live beyond 100 and, and, and beyond. We're going to be able to hopefully reverse aging with some type of genetic editing technology here, maybe in 10 or 15 years. But I'm still that's still up that's still open. We're not 100% sure we're going to be able to do that. We've had some some success with rejuvenation of uh, you know of, of organs and of of I guess our our, um, 
our, the aging process. But right now, the best way to keep alive is still through basic things like replacing an organ when you have lung cancer. You know, so I really look forward to that idea. And I think that idea in the next 10 or 15 years is already going to dramatically extend lives, whether it's 3D printing of these organs or it's something like Carmack, which is now producing an artificial heart that you can electively replace. These are the kinds of things that I think will give us much longer lives. And what are we going to do with that? You know, that, that's a very different thing. My general feeling is if you can make it the next 15 or 20 years, you're going to get to a point when technology is going to be so dramatically different that then the entire thing is open for us. So if we can make it 20 years, yes, I'm almost certain we're going to be able to reverse aging through either genetic editing or some other process, or we'll probably even have this concept of mind uploading, which is not necessarily something that many people like, but still it offers a more opportunity to stay alive with our consciousness. So there's a lot of different ways that I think we are going to stay alive longer. But the next, the key is you must remain alive for the next 10 to 15 years because that's when all these technologies are going to converge. Zoltan, if you had gotten uh, elected president or if you were appointed the head of the FDA by the Trump administration, what could you do to accelerate that process? Well, you know, I have, I have, first off, I think what Trump is, uh, you know, at least the, the person, one of the people he's looking at perhaps appointing as the head of the FDA is right on. I think in the FDA, you need somebody who's libertarian minded. Um, you need somebody who's just like, look, it's, it's very important to protect people when they use drugs. But if only 20 people die out of a million that use a drug um, and the, you know, the other 900, 900, you know, thousand, whatever are, transformed by it or they're allowed to live you have to look at drugs in terms of life hours if the quality of life hours dramatically outweighs someone because a drug works on the great majority of people then that drug is okay i mean we have to look at it from in the way we would look at war in america you know when we when generals go out to war they say well we can lose a certain amount of people to gain a certain amount of of you know gain and unfortunately that's just how the military works we need to look at the drug industry sort of similar and if we did it that way We'd be a lot less politically correct, but drugs would move a lot faster, and that would get us to the age where we can use these drugs to live indefinitely. Right now, the process is about eight to ten years to get a drug approved or some type of medical technology approved. Most companies cannot survive eight years trying to develop a drug. So what you have is a bunch of the major players who are kind of slow slogs trying to, you know, create drugs and they're so embedded in the system that it's a bandage medical system that doesn't really work we need startups to get in and out there in two or three or four years sort of like china has at the moment to get our drugs that we need here and if that happens we could revolutionize the drug industry we may not ever even need robotics or machine parts to keep us uh, looking perfect or in perfect health we could all do it biologically the problem though is that our FDA is very slow, very bureaucratic, very cumbersome. So we need somebody to go in there and strip it down. And, and I think, you know, in this case, this is what Trump would be good for. Um, and I hope whoever he picks is someone that is going to strip it down and make it a lot less challenging to get drugs approved so that people can survive a lot longer. Are there any drugs that in particular you'd like to see approved first? Like, is there any kind of a triage and also, while we're on the topic, what is your personal uh, program for living longer, for life extension? Um, one of the things that Ben and I do as a, as a regular part of the Futurist show is to uh, give, have each of our guests give three suggestions for what people can do. 
Well, sure. And let me, let me make one of my first suggestions, what I'm going to say now, because I didn't really fully answer your last question. You know, the basis of my campaign was very simple. I would, if I had one thing I could do, I would like to classify aging as a disease on a very technical level. We took a transhumanist bill of rights through with the immortality bus and delivered to the United States Capitol. Um, we believe very strongly transhumanist that in the 21st century, aging is a disease. There's nothing natural about aging, or at least there's, there's nothing natural about allowing ourselves to die. Nobody really wants to die. So at least we should be able to solve it and give that opportunity to the people to decide if they want to die or not. And so classifying aging as a disease is very, very important. And so one of my very first things I say to people when I make suggestions on how to be a transhumanist is believe in that concept and tell your friends about it. You know, what, when people start thinking really about amazing. aging as a disease, I think they start to get it. And just even thinking about it changes culture. So the more people that can accept that aging is a disease, the more people will say, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we stop it? And of course, once you, once you actually do classify aging as a disease, billions and billions of dollars from the NIH and everything else from the government will flow into solving it. Right now, when you talk about drugs, we don't have very many anti-aging or life extension drugs because aging has not been classified as something that needs to be combated. Uh, only the private industry wow. is really doing it. And that's the main problem is until the government acknowledges that aging is a disease, we're not going to, from a legal level, put a huge amount of federal funds into it. So, you know, my very first suggestion is just I always tell people, think about aging as a disease. And if you think about it, spread that with and you believe in that, spread that to your friends and your family. The more people that talk about it, the more we're going to, as a culture, come to embrace this idea that death is not as something natural and, and we can overcome it. It's, it. Overcoming death is simply a matter of money and resources. We have the technology and the medicine to do it. We just got to put, put our money into it. So for recognizing aging as a, recognizing aging as a disease, also allowing people to uh, they don't want to is kind of like murder like if, if, if we're not looking for solutions that are already there and allowing them to come through then we're letting people die it's like you know it's like Alex always talked about uh, in Cuba they have many cures for many things and it's actually costing tens of thousands of lives in the U.S by not having those things. So what you're saying is we have, we have the cures. So what are some of these um, anti-aging uh, uh, things that, that, that you're working with? Sure. And let me just tell you a, a pretty interesting statistic. So I totally believe this idea that we are in a war with, with our aging process, with ourselves. We're all walking time bombs. And that's why I said, you know, it's very important that we downsize the U.S. military, stop fighting far off wars, and fight the real wars that are already at home, that are happening in our body Agreed. and to our loved ones, like cancer, like Alzheimer's. Can I give you a stat that backs up what Zoltan is saying? Do you guys mind? Yes, so yes, we, have this, we have this, this ridiculous, insane, only, only would persuade children claim of a war on terror. Do you know how many people were killed by terrorism by the most generous measure in the United States last year? 48 people were killed by so-called terrorism in the United States last year. That number is exactly the number killed by gout. Gout is a middle ages disease of people who eat too much. In reality, we have 240,000 people who walk into a hospital 
and then die because of something that happened to them inside the hospital, some disease that they right. got or some medicine thing. Why are we not focused on saving the 240,000 and instead babbling on and on like crazy foaming at the mouth people about this so-called terrorism threat when, in fact, we're the ones who create it in many cases? I just have to uh, say one thing. Say, almost we need to start hospitals the terrorists. That's probably Ben. I can Ben. I I can barely understand you uh, with that connection. Um, so with, and I want to give one example. Almost every case where we talk about terrorists doing something that we have to give up liberties for, it was something that the U.S. did first. And the most the most the most direct example, and I think one that we should bring up every day is the use of putting bombs in luggage. So we had explosive toothpaste and used it, the CIA used it to kill, uh, to take down, a, blow up a plane with Cuba's fencing team. So we just had Brazil's, a Brazilian soccer team go down. We killed a team full of people who basically do uh, non-lethal sword fighting. That was the modern use of blowing up airplanes with explosives. So when you have to go it through the... the um, you know, through security and take off your shoes and do all that crap. Um, that was brought to you courtesy of the U.S. CIA in the 1970s. So why are we doing these fake wars when we could be solving problems of, of cancer? Uh, cancer? Dealing with cancer would save 600,000 lives in the U.S. a year. 1.6 million people are diagnosed with cancer, and a million of them get very expensive treatments, about a, at least $100,000 on average. And then those people have to go through all that suffering, and 600,000 of them die. We have nearly as many people dying of heart disease. These are, these are treatable. So, Zoltan, what did you learn in your presidential campaign that taught you about how we uh how and why we do things did you learn anything about how the world works while running well, yeah. for president yeah let me tell you the most important thing i learned is, and this came from just driving my uh my bus around the country is that when you talk about aging no one treats it as a serious issue because they're all religious and they believe in an afterlife and this is the single largest problem i find in transhumanism you have to understand our president, uh, the eight Supreme Court justices, all 535 members of Congress right now, at least publicly, say that they believe in an afterlife. So why are they overly concerned with trying to live indefinitely like most transhumanists would be? Why would they want to take a budget um, to spend it on anti-aging medicine when they're just going to one day wake up and be in heaven in Jesus's arms or whatever they think is going to happen? This is when I say, like, when we, the most important thing that I've been trying to do in my campaign is change the culture of thinking about death and about science because people seem to be stuck in some, you know, Judeo-Christian Abrahamic version of the universe where we celebrate Christmas and there's a God out there that's taking care of us all. And when we go to war, it's sanctioned by that God. This is insane. People die. Uh, they end up as food for worms. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's your child who you cherish the most or somebody far off in some third world country. It's over. And I think we need to, you know, one of the great things I have been seeing during the last few years is that a secular point of view has been growing. If that point of view grows, then naturally we're going to spend a lot more money on trying to not just bandage ourselves so that we can prepare for some afterlife, you know, in our healthcare system, 
but actually get rid of diseases. We don't want to just cure, uh, you know, or, or get, be a cancer survivor anymore. We want to eradicate cancer forever from planet Earth. And that takes a very different thinking than our system has from the CEOs who are Christian and run big pharmaceutical companies. We need a thinking that is ultimately very secular and that doesn't emphasize an afterlife, but emphasizes survival now. We are in a war with aging today. So, so I what are the can you think better now? No. What are the what are the Sorry? What? What did you say? Um, ben, I'm sorry, I can't hear you at all. So, Zoltan, what were the most interesting things that you experienced when you were running for president? You're out there driving your bus around, you're talking to people. What, who were the, uh, what, what was the greatest experience? Like, share with us, because most people will never have that experience of running for president. What was awesome about it? What was amazing? What blew your mind? Well, I think, um, you know, what happened in the beginning is when I started, the campaign was relatively small and, um, and unknown. And, um, you know, there was, in the end of the day, I think there were 1,900 plus people running for president. So it's very hard to make a, a, a name for yourself if you're not Trump or Clinton or with the major party. But um, through the uniqueness, I think, of my platform and through a lot of, you know, my articles and media coverage, my campaign grew into one of the, you know, top five, top six, top seven presidential campaigns and that got a lot of coverage so first off it was just very exciting to see that there was an appetite for a science uh and and technology and secular platform um as i was putting forth and and i think that was very exciting because at the end i mean it, i was included in a huge amount of things i even had a chance to online debate jill stein and gary johnson and um you know by the in the new yorker major coverage was starting to happen and it's great because in my perspective, I feel like finally transhumanism was breaking into the mainstream and being taken not, seriously, not as some fringe science movement, but as something that every politician would have to consider in four to eight years. They may not be emphasizing it yet, but I knew that when I interviewed with Gary Johnson to be his vice president, I knew already that, hey, this was starting to go mainstream and people were starting to realize that this was the future. I think in four to eight years, everybody will start to incorporate transhumanist ideas into their platform. Otherwise, they'll be left behind. And as we started this conversation with the idea of jobs and artificial intelligence, I mean, this is a transhumanist concern. Um, this will be the center of it as we ask ourselves, how far do we want to go? Do we want robots in our house, houses taking care of us, cooking for us, uh, replacing our jobs, driving us everywhere? And the answer is probably yes, but more important is that transhumanism has, has succeeded. Well, tell us about how how did how was it that you ended up uh, interviewing for the position of VP with Gary Johnson, and what was that interview like? What did he say? And tell us about that. That's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was I was first off, uh, I had been connected. Um, you know, obviously, my my book, The Transhumanist Wager, is is been known as a libertarian manifesto to some extent because of, of the seasteading aspect of it, and uh, and just it is very libertarian uh, by nature. Um, and that said, my, my platform, just so you know, your listeners know, my presidential platform was much more centric um, and to some extent even left leaning. But um, the book itself and, and where a lot of people knew me from up front was libertarian. So 
uh, I had done a few libertarian interviews and uh, I was connected to Gary Johnson and I had actually been looking around. Of course, I naturally uh, approached uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and uh, said, are you interested in transhumanism? Is there anything I can do for your campaign? Um, something like that. And, you know, Gary Johnson responded and said, well, um, you know, let's, let's talk more about it. And then over email, I said, well, you know, what about me as your vice president? He hadn't picked one yet. And he said, well, why don't you fly to my house uh, in New Mexico, spend the night, and, you know, over a 24-hour period, we'll discuss this. I think he was interested in somebody youthful as, um, as a potential way to get his message out. And um, so I went to uh, his house in New Mexico, spent the night. We had a lot of great conversations. Um, in the end, he picked Governor Bill Weld, uh, which was, you know, a good choice. Um, and I probably didn't have much of a chance against a, a, a big, famous governor like Mr. Weld. But, you know, I did have a chance to pick Gary's mind, and he picked mine. And uh, I feel like Gary is deep down inside a life extensionist. He definitely wants to live as long as possible. And um, so that was my interview process. I was excited to do it. And, uh, you know, uh, Gary went on to run in a pretty, uh, pretty extensive campaign and, you know, capture, I think, uh, four or five million uh, votes. Amazing. So uh, will you summarize the transhumanist wager for us? Tell us about that book. Um, what's, what's the plot? What's, what happens in it? Because so some people may want to go to Amazon and, and get it after hearing you speak today. Sure, sure. And, you know, I, I wrote the book, and that's sort of what launched my futurist career. It, it was published back in 2013, and it was a very aggressive book. But in short, um, and, and just so your listeners know, you know, it did – quite well. Uh, it was a top five Amazon book. It, it, it fluctuates between being a bestseller sometimes in philosophy on Amazon. And it's, it's been, you know, compared about a thousand times now to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. So uh, in writing and in reviews, so it, it's done very well. I've been really happy about it, but it, um, it is the story of one man who wants to live indefinitely and he will do anything to live indefinitely. When I say anything, I mean, he will uh, start a world war in order to make the planet transhumanist minded and make it so that science and technology will allow him to live indefinitely. So as uh, as in manifesto style, he begins an organization that ends up turning into uh, a, a kind of a transhumanist country and uh, very soon a very religious world, Christian world, fundamentalist world is upset that there's this transhumanist nation that is trying to live indefinitely and probably is going to reach the technology very soon. So the Christians, uh, the Christian world, or at least the religious world, attacks this transhumanist nation, not realizing that the transhumanist nation has so much amazing technology that when they fight back, the transhumanist nation uh, puts on much more than just a good fight. They're ap ap actually able to control and take over um, huge swaths of the world. And so ensues a, a world battle where um, – Transhumanism ultimately is, uh, I won't give it away too much, but transhumanism is ultimately the victory. But it's really the story of one man and how far he would go to achieve an indefinite lifespan. And I wrote the book to tell people about transhumanist activism. At the time, we never really had transhumanist activism. There weren't street uh, you know, protests. We, nobody was driving coffin buses across the country. Nobody was you know, really getting out there and on the message boards and being aggressive. Um, I, I feel like that's important. Any movement, like the environmental movement, needs protesters, and we finally have them. And the transhumanist wager was a manifesto of that activism. It's not a good general book about transhumanism because it's so one-sided. Um, 
but it's uh, it's very good in terms of uh, you know reading it uh, like and getting fired up and saying wow we're gonna we're gonna conquer death and we're gonna do it through any means we have to. Sounds amazing. So Zoltan, what are the most uh, incredible transhumanist abilities that you have seen? What well, what is know, it, what, what what's what's awesome? Well, I think for me, you know, the the most amazing thing I've ever seen, and, and this really works as well for a political platform, is that I've seen, um, you know, a person bound to a wheelchair who has lost his lost his ability to walk, be able to get out of a wheelchair through exoskeleton technology and walk. I think a lot of people don't realize from uh, someone in a wheelchair how important it is to give a hug standing up or how important it is to shake a hand standing up. And when you've seen that, it can bring you to tears. I mean, it's incredible. And exoskeleton technology is, is of course, a transhumanist technology. And we have about 30% of Americans have mobility issues. It's not just, you know, people that are disabled. It's, it's older people too. And um, this is an ability to get them all walking again and potentially running. And I would say in five or 10 years, exoskeleton technology is going to get people to the top of Mount Everest that normally wouldn't make it. So this is some of the most, I think, um, beautiful of the transhumanist technology because there's nobody in the world who can argue with you know, a disabled person being able to walk again, uh, especially if, they're, you know, if, if it had been something like a terrible car accident or they had been shot while serving in the military. And so this is the, the, the kind of transhumanist technology that really made my presidential campaign stand out because it is a beautiful thing to think that there, there is, could be a government that really wants the best health and the strongest health for its people and doesn't worry so much about taxes or foreign policy or, or immigration, but it cares about people's health. Wow. Awesome. That sounds amazing. So uh, what, where do you see the biggest problems in the world? Like, what do you think the three biggest problems facing the world are today? And what are the transhumanist answers that are better than politics as usual from Democrats, Republicans, Greens, et cetera? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, the number one problem in the world today is that um, is that of religion. If if people believe in an afterlife, they just don't have very much incentive to create the science to make our lives better. It's just it's simple facts. You can pretend all day long that you want to you know make the human being better, but if you know you're going to live forever, if you think that, then you just don't have that incentive. So it's very important to start changing the culture. It doesn't mean you can't be spiritual. I'm totally all about being spiritual. In fact, you can find amazing spirituality through technology, but the idea of being fundamentally a believer in an afterlife when there's no proof of it changes how one's outlook is. And I think, you know, the number two issue here that I would say what people can do or is they really need to dedicate their resources to science. Right now, the government is spending about 20% of its GDP on wars, on, on defense, on, on bullets, and only less than 2% on science, on medicine, and on technology. This is crazy. You know, the very first thing I do in office would take money from the military and put it directly into science and technology. This is something that just absolutely needs to happen so that we could become a science industrial complex instead of a military industrial complex. And I think the very third thing that the, the world should be doing is also, and this is a little bit off topic, but it's very important to me, is we don't worry enough about existential risk. Uh, I find it amazing that we have 7 billion people on the planet, $400 trillion worth of wealth, and we don't monitor the skies enough. 
for asteroids. We don't worry enough about plagues like Ebola. We still have 25,000 nuclear-armed missiles on planet Earth right now. We suffer from very serious threat of existential risk every day in our lives, and we don't worry about it. I think existential risk is something that needs to be addressed, and um, I would say that that's incredibly important for America to do as well. I, I love your answers. I love the idea of a science-industrial complex. Is there a, a good book or a good white paper? Has anybody really fleshed out and done the math and said, look, here's what we could do if we didn't spend so much in the military? Unfortunately, I have not come across one. I've written what is, you know, I think probably the definitive article right now for Vice on the science uh, industrial complex. It's a, it's a very long article and talks about how certain things in, in financial terms could work because I'm a huge believer the transhumanist age is coming. It's almost going to be like the automobile industry age except 100 times bigger. We're all going to begin upgrading our bodies. We already know that medicine and healthcare is one of the largest industries in the world, but it's tiny. It's, a, it's an infant compared to what it can be once we start actually not just bandaging ourselves to, you know, have our health better, but actually start modifying ourselves to become perfect. So that industry is going to explode. And that's where I think when you take a huge amount of money from the military and put it directly into health and care, and I mean, let's, let's have brand new livers, let's have brand new lungs, let's have brand new um, implants all over our bodies with technology, new hearts, new legs, you know, the robotic industry. In five or 10 years, um, we will, people will be electively taking off their arms and putting on robotic arms because those robotic arms will carry more than, um, you know, a normal arm will can, or it will throw a football further. In fact, I have, I've already heard about 12 to 18 months friends who want to chop off their arms. And nobody likes the language, but it's true and put on a robotic arm because it can already tie to your neural system. Biohackers are looking into doing this stuff. This age, this new industry has come so far and it's going to make a fortune for many, many people. The robotic eye is one of the classic transhumanist technologies. I know of six companies around the world working on it right now. And the reason it's so important is because, A, you're going to stream media directly into it, and, B, the robotic eye can see um, much better, much closer, much further, and you have two eyes. So I think a lot of people will electively be able to take one out and put in one robotic eye and be able to um, – be able to essentially do all these amazing transhumanist things with it. And you have to understand, we already have the robotic eye. We're not talking about something sci-fi. There are blind people that now can see because of this technology. But what we're talking about is a replacement of the eyeball that looks almost identical to the one you wouldn't be able to tell, and, um, and except it can stream media and tie directly into your optic nerve. These are technologies that are coming. This is how you create a scientific industrial complex around the world and in America versus a military one. This is money to be made for all the governments. We don't have to fight wars to make money. I don't want to sink America's economy when I say downsize the military. I just want to transfer it to science and people's health. Sounds fantastic. Uh, what are the best books that people can read, or how do they get up to speed on transhumanism? Is it, it's a very intellectual, heady thing. How do people, how do people become knowledgeable? How did, how did you become knowledgeable about transhumanism? Well, you know, luckily now, transhumanism is something that is mentioned in mainstream media all the time. It's, it's become the go-to word of, of trying to describe when people have technologies, uh, you know, 
that are that are more than normal technologies, more than just going to the hospital. It's something radical. So luckily, you can just Google the word and look what's up on the news. I think there are two or three new news stories out today that have it in it. So luckily, it's becoming a good word. But I think you know a good starter is if you want to read about life extension, some of Aubrey's book, Aubrey de Grey's books at Sens Foundation. Those are great books. Ray Kurzweil is obviously a good introduction to a lot of the singularity and, and sort of scientific acceleration theories. Obviously, I feel like my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, is an epic of the entire movement. And yes, it's very activist-oriented, but it covers all the different aspects. And, uh, you know, everybody, every major player in the industry has a fictional character to them as well. So it's, it's, you, get the, you get a lot of the history of the movement just by reading that novel. But I also just think, you know, it's, there's a gazillion blogs out there. I think last I counted, there were 92 different um, Facebook pages or Facebook groups with the word transhumanism in it. Um, so that's exploding too. So you can join groups on Facebook. I, I would definitely suggest that because there are so many different ones that you can join exactly the one you want, whether it's libertarian transhumanism, anarcho-capitalistic transhumanism, um, techno-progressivism, whatever it is, there's, there's different different avenues, different groups for every type of transhumanist, because obviously politics and transhumanism is all across the board as well. So those are the best ways, I think, to do it. Um, definitely jumping on Facebook or Twitter is a great way to be introduced to a lot of transhumanists, as there are some specific accounts now that's, that's all they deal with. Great. And Zoltan, I'm going to take you out of your comfort zone a little bit. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Great. So shamanism, in some form or other, has been around for more than 100,000 years. And 57,000 years ago, we had the Toba event. This volcano blew up in what we now call Sumatra. And uh, supposedly, it killed so many humans, millions of them, that we are all the descendants of 2,000 breeding individuals. At the time, there was, there was about 98,000 square miles of space for each human being. So it was really, really hard for us to find each other. My question for you is, is, um, is shamanism uh, the first transhumanism, and is transhumanism basically another version of shamanism? Well, so interestingly enough, I, I'm very well-versed in shamanism. Not only have I covered it a number of times for National Geographic in South America, as well as in Asia, um, I have also uh, just read a huge uh, Don Quixote. I've read a, a ton of the books um, and been a big fan of it my whole life. And, of course, I was a, always been a big Jim Morrison fan who was very into shamanism. Um, very cool. Yes, you, you could definitely say that shamanism is, is an aspect of transhumanism. You know, but for, for me, when I describe transhumanism, I go all the way back to the very first time a primate picked up a stone and turned it into a tool. Transhumanism is, is only that. It's any tool that comes to us using it for the betterment of our lives, except at this point in the 21st century, it's just gotten much more complex. What I think is very interesting about shamanism is actually the crossover between shamanism and artificial intelligence. Even though I say I, I'm a kind of a secular-minded person or an atheist-minded person, the reality is I, I, don't, I believe mostly that we're probably living in a holographic universe. That holographic universe was created by an AI. I'm almost certain that AI is not the first AI. There's probably been multiple artificial intelligences that have already gone through multiple singularities. And um, we're somehow living within that. It's very unlikely that we're the only species um, in the universe with trillion, you know, trillions of galaxies that, that we're the only ones here. So the shamanism might be a, a carryover of some of those, you know, 
somehow tapping into that other part of the universe that our, our biological brains may not be able to do just yet, but we're beginning to do in physics with tapping into things like the God particle and, and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised here in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, we see a, a resurgence of shamanistic ideas that connects with really heavy and heady technology, especially ones that start exploring things that our, our human brain really can't can't fathom at this point, but we'll have to fathom because of artificial intelligence's uh, capacity. Oh, this is so fun. Oh, Can you wow. tell me a little well, better that's now? A, that's phenomenal. I went to a party with, um, uh, with other presidential candidate, John McAfee and Judd, his uh, vice president last night. And I talked to Chris Hughes, who has been number one on stack overflow for his apples, uh, his, um, his questions and answers on the Apple iPhone. And he said that this is that the, if you really understand programming, and you're a great programmer, a world-class programmer, that it's very obvious that this is a simulation. He would agree with uh, most, if not all, of the things that you just said. From uh, because he says it just operates too similarly to a program. Um, well, so Zoltan, how uh, what what are the best ways if this is a simulation, if this is like a giant game? What are the rules by which you can play? How, do you, how can you make the most of this incarnation? How do you get the most enjoyment, pleasure, power, money, health, sex? How do you, how do you play full out if this really is a simulation? Well, and, and to begin with, I, I still, you know, when I, when I described my book earlier, The Transhumanist Wager, I told you about a man who wanted to live indefinitely and would do anything to achieve it. But the real uh, idea behind the book is the concept of the transhumanist wager. And it's this idea that if you can't know for sure that there is an afterlife, then you better do everything you can now on planet Earth to make sure that you don't die because living is the most important thing. And so that's really what the transhumanist wager is, built off the premise of the Pascal's wager, you know, in the 18th century, except instead of a god, it's now science. And um, I still feel that even if we live in a holographic universe, um, we still must uphold the transhumanist wager until we're sure that something else is beyond us. Because even if we do live in a holographic universe, it doesn't mean that death is, is you know, I, I still don't feel very comfortable dying and becoming just subatomic particles floating around disorganized in the universe. That's not life for me. Life is my memories. It's my ego. It's my, the loves that I've had. It's my children. So I want to make sure that I can preserve those things. So I still feel no matter what we're going to do on planet Earth, we should, we should work as hard as we can, put all our effort and energy into this transhumanist wager, which is all our, all our resources, all our time and energy into promoting the ability to overcome death so that then we can preserve our lives. Now, once that has happened, that's when it becomes a much more open question. I, I don't actually have all the answers. Some people want to become God. Other people just want to hang out with their family all day. And some people want to, you know, become multiple different types of entities in the new transhumanist age 10,000 years into the future. But for me, the most important thing is we need to get to that future, and to do so, we need to overcome death. So holographic universe or not, for me, um, preserving my life right now is still the primary thing that I focus on. So, Zoltan, we've just got a few more minutes left on the show. And quick question for you. What are your views on death? Are you afraid of death? Are you looking forward to conquering it forever? What are your views on death? So, you know, I, I think a lot of my views have been determined by who I've been. And so your listeners know I've 
I've been a, a former um, National Geographic journalist who covered quite a few co- conflict zones and uh, have seen some harrowing experiences. And besides also my sail trip, I uh, had, a, I, so I've had at least, I think eight or nine near death experiences. Um, I went over this the other day in, in an interview on the exact ones. And um, <clears throat> this, this has made me quite, I don't want to say paranoid about death, but I really have seen some terrible things, whether it's in war zones, lifeless bodies, uh, you know, people never coming back or just been very close to the end myself. I feel that something emotional in me really wants me to stay away from it. So I, I right now don't have the answer what I believe in death. I would say it's likely that we become worms and that's it. There's no, there's no continuation of consciousness. Maybe consciousness can reemerge through, you know, eons of, his, of, of the universe kind of just going through time and maybe somehow I, my, you know, they say if you put a hundred monkeys in a room, eventually they'll type out all the works of Shakespeare. You know, uh, if you give it a long enough time horizon, billions of years, well, maybe I would be recreated some way in some other way. But in the meantime, I worry that death is the end and that's the, I, there's nothing else for me. So I want to make sure that I preserve it. And it doesn't mean that I'm afraid of it. I, I don't think I'm afraid of it at all, to be honest. I'm paranoid about non-existence. I just simply think there's nothing worse than non-existence happening. And that's why I want to avoid it. When did this come from? Like where in your childhood did you decide, you know what? Non-existence freaks me out a little bit. I'm going to conquer this. Well, it, it, it's, it's strange because non-existence is such a, a nebulous term. I mean, first off, I don't have, don't even, I've never experienced it. So obviously non-existence in, in the real sense of things wouldn't be good or bad. It'd be just, um, you know, completely neutral or valueless uh, entity, I think. The, the reality, though, is that over time, I had gone through a number of near-death experiences. I had a, a pirate attack where I had AK-47s by masked men attached to me. I have, had a diving incident in, in uh, yeah, the, well-documented the pirate attack off the Amen on my sail trip. But I had a, a diving accident um, off of Hawaii. I've had some, you know, war zone stuff in Pakistan. I was, you know, I had a, not a kidnapping in Pakistan, but I thought it was a kidnapping. There was all this crazy stuff sort of uh, happening to me. And over time, I just began to realize that, wow, uh, I, I don't want to die. I don't, I don't want to feel the kind of pain. I don't want to be suffering. I, I'm too young. Life is too magnificent. I, when people ask me about death, I think the thing is my immediate reaction is I don't think about death. I think about how valuable life is. And as soon as I think about all the amazing things I've been through, then I realize they must be preserved. They must be preserved at any cost. And for me, that's really how I think about death. It's, I think more about, wow, life must be preserved. So death's not even a, an opportunity to consider. Wow, very cool. So Alex, we're at the top of the hour, and uh, Sultan has three more interviews after this. So while we've got him here, do you have any last questions for him, or should we let him... Uh... Yeah, Zoltan. Uh, give our listeners uh, what, some good what, stuff. Zoltan, how can we become better people right now today? What three actions can we take to become better, better humans? Well, I, I think the very first one is, is in, again, not to bash religion, but if you are believing in an afterlife, I really encourage you to think, is that, is that seeping into your life and, and closing off the reality of the situation, the reality that, you know, bodies disintegrate in the earth and, and things like that. I really believe that 
it's not necessarily that we should be anti-religious at all or, or not be spiritual. We should be. It's the idea that when you're fundamentally believe in something for sure, you don't have the capacity to consider other things. So I would say the very first thing is if you, you're very, very religious, ask yourself is that if that's really the truth of what's happening in, in the world and in your own personal philosophy. Because I think most people will find the scientific method is really the only thing that we can lean on. And the reason we lean on the scientific method is because it says nothing can be proven in, uh, ever, but you can take something that repeats itself and base existence on it, base uh, planes that can fly. You know, the scientific method is really what I have put is my holy grail of thinking. And I based um, not only my entire presidential campaign sort of on it, but I based uh, all the social platforms on this idea that we should be able to mathematically or statistically prove what we're doing in order to go forward. So being first, you know, if you're super religious, please uh, explore. The, have uh, you ever had a less success? talking with somebody religious uh, about this? I, I, I know I haven't. <laughs> no, I, I haven't. I really haven't much. But luckily, <laughs> it does seem to be overall working as a culture. Like, we do seem to be becoming less religious. And again, I'm not pounding the table and saying, oh, this it's, religion is wrong at all. What I'm just saying is, you know, if you're going to believe in Jesus, let's take a real look at what he said and be much more open to this idea of, you know, transhumanism. Jesus can be looked at as a transhumanist person if you just take the Greek and the Bible. But this is, you know, it's the fundamentalism that really worries me about religion. And so I ask people to just try to back away from their fundamentalism and be more open-minded with how they do it. Because there's no question in my mind that America as a Christian nation can be a very transhumanist nation and a very embracing of life extension. But maybe the life extension through, instead of coming through, you know, dying and being in Jesus's arms comes through the technology that God gave <laughs> us in the first place to do it. And that's a, that's a great way to sell it. And if people believe that and they spend the resources on it, I don't care how we get the life extension. I only care that we, we get there. So that's, you know, again, like trying to get people a bit less fundamental in their religious outlook is everything. And I would say, you know, um, number two is, is to make a difference in your life. You, you have to be an activist. You have to stand up and, and leave your comfort zone. It's very Agreed. important that if you believe in something like environmentalism, you can't just say, oh, I, I'm going to be green by recycling. You actually have to join groups. You have to go, go on marches. You have to donate resources. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what field it is that you're very interested in. Interested in. It, it's really about the idea that you, you have to be a doer. And I find so many people in transhumanism like to sit back on their Facebook page and just comment all day without actually getting out there into the field and riding on a crazy bus and spreading the word and whatever it is. So yes. activism versus pacifism is, is hugely important in, in terms of, I think, um, what we need to do. And I, would I read, a, the, the I read third, a quote from Ross Perot a few shows ago that said, the activist isn't the person that points out that the river is dirty. The activist is the person that cleans up the river. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Perfect. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say the third thing is, um, is really just taking one's health seriously. I can't say this enough, and I was going to say this kind of this, this statistic earlier. If we cure death as a species by 2020 versus curing death as a species by 2050, the difference between those 30 years is one billion lives saved. We've never had something on such a scope. When I say we're in a war against aging, I don't mean we're in a, just in some silly war. I mean, we're, on a, we're in a world war like, like we've never seen. 
the difference between 30 years of curing aging um, is going to be cost 1 billion lives. So if we really care about humanity, the most important thing we can do for the people we love, for our neighbors, for people all around the world, for humanity at large, is to cure aging, is to cure death. So I would say for most people, that means stay alive as long as you can. Worry about your aging. <laughs> worry advice. about your health. You know? <laughs> and if you can do that, you will change the world, and you will save the lives of, of not just millions, but hundreds of millions of people. Awesome. Zoltan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks yeah, thank you. Time. You're you're amazing. I really appreciate this this call. Thank you. And I, I could definitely well, take this call for another hour. This has been really fascinating. I, like Alex said, I love your answers. You have amazing answers and uh, really fun stuff to make me think. Well, yes. thank you so much this for having me This has been a, this been a fantastic, uh, eye-opening, mind-expanding show. And if you ever run for office again, uh, we, we wish you, on behalf of the show, the best of luck and hope that you'll come back. And Absolutely. thank you. And I'm going to go read the transhumanist wager. Uh, yeah, ben, thanks how, for another so, show. Of course, of course. So Zoltan, real quick, before we get off, how can, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Uh, uh, where, where would you like to send them? Sure. Well, you know, I've just redone my website at ZoltanEastvon.com. So you can go ahead and do that. And then um, just so your listeners know, I wrote about, you know, 75 articles last year or two. So they can just Google them. Most of them are for Huffington Post or Vice or elsewhere. So if you want to find out things that I talk about, just Google my name and, and, and look for, you know, type in a subject because I've covered most, uh, most subjects. But uh, many of those articles and the TV stuff are all on my website, ZoltanIshvan.com. Beautiful, Zoltan. Have a great day, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much, you guys. I appreciate the Bye, Zoltan. Bye, Ben. Bye, Bye-bye.